Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Hey there, everybody. Pastor Matt here from Roots Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to welcome you to this week's message. We're going to continue on in our series this week of stewardship. Last week was a podcast-only message, and it's available there for you now, so you can go catch it. But this is week three, and these first three weeks of the series have been based off one particular passage out of Matthew 25, 14 through 29. I'm going to read it one more time in your hearing to kind of bring it back to the forefront of your memory and give a foundation for where we're going to go for this message today. It starts like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with the two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they used his money. The servant to whom he had trusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, and now, or so now I will give you the, uh, many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid uh, to lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. We've addressed over the last several weeks of this series that this this parable is about one thing uh, specifically, and that is stewardship. It does have elements that it refers to uh, of things that we should steward. And the first week was time. The second week was talent. And then this week, we're going to talk about the third one, which is treasure. But when we say that word stewardship, let me be very clear on what we're talking about. And let me make sure that we are all working from the same understanding of what we're commanded to do. That word stewardship is defined as the job of supervising, managing, or taking care of something. The job of supervising, managing, or taking care of something. So when we talk about stewardship of our time, talent, and treasure, what we're talking about is we have been given a responsibility, a job, 
to supervise, to manage, and take care of our time, our talent, and our treasure. This week, we're looking at stewarding our treasure. And um, before we even get into the message any further, there could be some of you who are listening to this who have grown up in church like I have, and you immediately just got tight. Like, oh no, Matt is a pastor and he's talking about money. He's about to pass the offering plate. And, you know, I'm glad I'm not there in person. I'm watching this on video or he's going to post a link and you better give right now or something like that. And um, if you got tight right there, if you just clutched your wallet a little bit closer, you grabbed your purse and held it to your chest or something, you know, uh, uh, out of out of a little bit of fear because you hear a pastor talking about money. I have one thing to say to you. I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And the reason I don't blame you is because most of the prominent and visible American churches have been so focused on keeping the ship running that they have moved from a gathering of believers, a shepherd and a flock, jointly pursuing God together. And they have turned into basically a faith-based entertainment business. And you can see that a lot in this culture, right? Because there's so much... Um, a focus on money and finances and materialism, and people think you're doing well if you have a whole bunch of money. And if you have a whole bunch of money, you must know something that someone else doesn't have. And 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 because our churches, have, uh, a lot of our visible churches and the ones that make the news quite a bit, um, operate from this pretense, and they kind of operate even if they don't intend to. Um, they're they're worried about you know attendance and revenue and. Reta- uh, retaining the, the people who visit and retention percentages and ROI and performance bonuses for people who can, you know, recruit people to their churches. Um, because of that, things have become very corporatized when we think of very visible um, American churches. And a lot of these guys go to conferences and they teach people who are in smaller churches to follow their footsteps because, hey, if um, if you have a whole bunch of people and you got a whole bunch of money, then you're being successful. That's a definition of success. Um, and because of this, the American church in some capacities has turned into an industry. It's there. There's a, a way that you can get people to come to your church. There's a way that you can... Um, uh, invite people. There's a certain marketing strategies around it, and there's certain um, uh, organizations that will give you upfront money to try to help you start your church. If you will just promise them that you'll give a percentage of it back in perpetuity throughout the life of your church, so they can help some other people get planted. And um, and it's it becomes very industrialized. And so because of that, and because all of us have been in, if you've been in church, you know, I would say that most of you probably watching this are have been or are currently, I get the tightness because it feels like when a church talks about money, it's in this kind of, you know, kind of this grimy way. <clears throat> and I understand that. Um, I made donations to or many donations, my wife and I both, before we were married and after we were married. I made many donations to our church as younger, younger people, as early in ministry. And sometimes I gave because there was this promise from the pastor, the minister, the guest speaker, or whatever, that if you just give 
X amount of dollars, you're going to get back 10 times, 50 times, 100 fold of what I quote unquote sowed into the kingdom. Now, these are very unbiblical promises, but at the time I didn't know any better. The time I just took what they said and was um, was not inclined to go and try to find it in scripture for myself. And so um, when they kept telling me, so into the kingdom, so into the kingdom, I should have asked the question to myself and maybe even to them, what kingdom am I sowing into? Because I didn't, I thought we were all talking about the kingdom of God. But what I didn't realize is that many of those times when I was being you know, kind of coerced into giving and buttered up and the music was just right and the lights were just right and it came at a certain pivotal point in the message. Um, I, you know, it was it was very, this, this moving experience where you're like, of course I would give. I mean, like, I, I didn't realize I wasn't giving to the kingdom of God. I was giving to a very temporary kingdom that someone was building on the earth. Had I not been conditioned to think about blessings as more money, um, then I would have not probably given to all the various funds that were presented. I would not have given, given to the late-night televangelist. Yes, I, I did that. I would have not given to ministries who twisted Scripture to get my donation because you know they promised I was going to get back this massive return. I mean, if they could guarantee me that I was going to give 100 bucks and I was going to get back 100000 or... You know, I was going to get back, you know, 10,000 or something in a certain, you know, season of my life. And why wouldn't you do that? I mean, that's a win-win, right? I mean, God gets what he wants, money from me to go do this ministry, and then he gives me back a whole bunch more. I mean, score, right? But at the end, if you've fallen for some of this stuff, then you've realized that you got bamboozled. And I have been duped on a lot of that stuff, just like many of you have. Now, is it biblical to give to church? Absolutely. Is it biblical to give to ministries and, and to things that you want to be generous towards and outreaches and people who need absolutely give to those things? <clears throat> but my job as a pastor in the ministry is not to use Scripture like some you know, industrial-sized can opener to, try, uh, to, you know, to pry a few bucks out of your you know, cold, dead hands um, so, but, and so that you can feel satisfied to go back after, well, I gave a few bucks in the offering, so I'm, I was extra good this week, um, and then go back to living the stingy, self-centered life everywhere else and every other time. If you were raised in a family like me, we were not, you know, super well off. We weren't poor, but we were in that kind of lower middle class, um, range of, you know, of economics and and if you were raised in that or maybe even with less you you probably understand that I got a survive mentality when it comes to money um and then that kind of leads some people to really dive deep and try to say well if I got to survive because I haven't had a lot I'm going to go out there and make it my mission just to get a ton of money and we must unravel these ideas based on scripture. We can't fall for the the what's been traditionally presented to us in the past. We have to kind of push through all of the noise and get to his word and figure out what is presented there. This story that we just read about the parable of the talents is very clear. The master left his money with his servants. 
when he came to give an account, he said, what did you do with my money that I entrusted you with? He made it very clear that we do not own our money, our land, our property, our vehicles, our homes, our apparel, our possessions. We don't own it. We're not owners. Oh, it might, you know, have your name on it in the bank. You know, if you have a home, your name could be on the title of the car. It could be, you know, you might have a receipt to prove that you purchased it, but ultimately all of that, everything that you have and own has become, has come from God and you are a steward of it, not an owner. If you would grasp that one concept right there, it might change every decision that you make about money. Everything that you do. Oh, well, it's mine. I can do what I want with it. What is it? If I take that approach, then I'll do whatever I want when I want. And if I don't have enough to get what I want, then I can go into the debt and get it and start paying it back later. But if I change my mindset into, wait a minute, I'm a steward of this money. I am a steward of what has been given to me. And I have been given a job to supervise, manage, and care for what I've been given. You have been entrusted with it. See, money is a test of responsibility and obedience. I'm going to say that one more time. It's a test of responsibility and obedience. What I'm not telling you, all right, is that you can't enjoy anything. That you can't have a nice home or a nice car or a nice couch or a nice whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not telling you that. You absolutely can. I'm not telling you that you can't go on a vacation or take a day off or anything like that. That's not proper stewardship. You can have all of those things. Those things just can't have you. You can have a whole bunch of money, but that money can't have you. What do I mean by that? I mean that if your sole focus in your life is to get more money and things, you are stewarding your time, your talent, your treasure incorrectly. Your focus is in the wrong place. What we need in the body of Christ is real, authentic, like really true disciples of Christ that have an abundance of money so that they can support the work of the ministry, they can give the outreach programs, they can help missionaries, they can form, or they can fund various levels of education, they can meet the needs of the poor as a witness to God. They need to be armed with the tool of money, stewarded correctly, so that they will have more than what they need to live and to pass on to their children so that they can give to other people. What we don't need is a bunch of people with a complex about needing to be seen as successful. If someone needs to be seen as successful, then what they're struggling with is not um, a stewardship issue. It's a pride issue. Our mindset has to change to one with roots in Scripture when it comes how to deal with money. Now, I want to read you three passages of Scripture for the rest of our time together. Um, and two, the first two are warnings about money. So these first two will go um, a little quicker than the last one. Okay, so this first warning is found in Luke 12, 13 through 21. 
uh, this, there's a man who's following Jesus in this crowd. And as Jesus is teaching and walking and talking to these people, he yells out from the crowd that he wants Jesus to make his brother do something. Talk about sibling rival, rivalries, right? Like if you have a sibling at some point in time, you're like, you guys could be really tight right now like me and my brother are. Um, but you, uh, when you're growing up and kids, you can understand how that, those little internal wars and those little looks and, you know, sticking your tongue out at each other or whatever, you know, trying to get someone to react in some way. You can understand how this sibling rivalry kind of goes. And that's a little bit what's happening here. And Jesus takes this moment of sibling rivalry around an inheritance and then begins to teach a lesson. Let's read it. Verse 13. And then someone called from the crowd, teacher. Please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, friend, you have enough stored away for years to come, but take it easy. But now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. In this particular passage, one of the things I want to draw your attention to is the fact that there's not a period after this sentence. There's a, um, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth. Some people might look at that and go, Matt, you're telling me that I shouldn't be saving? I shouldn't be investing? I shouldn't be putting stuff away for retirement? I shouldn't be saving things for my college, you know, my kids' college education? I shouldn't be doing that? Oh, no, no, no. It doesn't say that storing up or saving is a problem. It says that storing up earthly wealth without having a rich relationship with God is the foolish act. See, what the story is doing is reprioritizing what we should be viewing as our purpose and important. If you spend your whole life trying to get money, get more, get more, get more, bigger house, bigger cars, bigger, you know, um, uh, portfolios, bigger jets, bigger whatever the thing is, more, more, more. If you spend your whole time doing that and you ignore God with your life, what did you do it all for? So people would look at you and think, oh man, this is great. Or you can give your life to Christ, have a rich relationship with God, and then use what he has entrusted you with, steward it well, to provide for others. That will become part of your purpose. But people who, no matter what they tell you, they, I have a purpose. I know what my purpose is. People who are following Jesus, they are Christians, they are believers, or people have a rich relationship with God, like this passage said. Those are the ones who have a true grasp on their purpose. Oh, sure, somebody will tell you, oh, I know what my purpose is, who's an unbeliever. Somebody who doesn't, uh, doesn't have a relationship with Christ can tell you, oh, I know what my purpose is, I discovered my purpose. They have found a purpose. It doesn't mean it's the one that is theirs. When we have no purpose, 
we become our purpose. When we don't have any purpose, we become our purpose because purpose always involves people. It always involves other people. It always involves serving them, giving to them, leading them, teaching them, feeding them in some capacity. It always involves other people. And if you don't have a purpose, especially one um, uh, that comes from God, and you're not focused on others, you can have your own selfish desires become your purpose. And this is what this passage is warning us against. Second warning about money, Luke 18, 18 through 24. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit our eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not falsely testify. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I have obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's not one ounce of me that believes that Jesus didn't already know that this man was rich when he told him this. There's not an ounce in me that thinks that Jesus isn't using this as a setup or as a, as a way to point to a larger issue. You kept all the rules. You honored your father and mother. You haven't killed. You haven't steal, you know, stolen anything. You haven't you know, broken any of the previous commandments. You haven't broken any of those. But there's one more thing that I need from you. Outside of following the rules, sell everything you have. Now let's stop right here. There's a, a, a tendency in Christianity for people to read the Bible and put themselves in the passage. They think they are the one that is being talked to in these moments. And if that's you, you could look at this passage and go, wait a minute. Am I supposed to sell everything I own? Am I supposed to sell off everything and then find some way to follow Jesus in a different level? If God's communicating that to you through a many different ways and confirming that, then whatever he tells you to do, however nuts it seems, go do it. But this particular passage is not saying that. Jesus knew he was rich. He knew this man loved his money. How do we know he loved it? Because when when Jesus said to sell everything you have and give it all to the poor, the man was sad. He had a negative emotional reaction. He was attached to it, his feelings, his heart, his mind. He, he just loved it because if he had no attachment to it, he wouldn't have been sad. Sure, I'll just give it away. I don't care about it. That, the money is nothing. That's why I'll come follow you. Absolutely. What Jesus is getting at here is that when you pursue money or you have a lot, there is a tendency, and here's a warning here for us, that do not let it become everything to you. 
Don't become so engrossed in materialism and the things that you have and the conquest to always get more just for the sake of having more. I'm going to have to get a second bank account and another bank because I have so much money. I'm going to have to get a, I'm going to have to do, you know, big, uh, build a bigger barn to hold all the stuff, just like this man said. That's not the goal. The goal is to serve God and let our attachment be to him, not to things. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk growing up about this statement that he made here that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into heaven. That phrase was told to me as a child that the quote unquote eye of the needle was a very small gate on one side of Jerusalem in the wall. And that to get through it, the camel had to kneel down and like crawl through it. And um, that this was kind of a, a reference to humility. As we've gone on, if you've heard that, that is not, none of that is true. There wasn't a gate called the eye of the needle. There wasn't a, a, you know, this is not Jesus saying that you have to be humble and the rich won't get down on their knees and, you know, and, and humble themselves to come through the gate. No, no, that's not what he's talking about here. This, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle is a saying that um, was prevalent in that area during that time. <clears throat> um, and there's a couple of different iterations of it. Sometimes people would say, you know, it's easier for the for a camel to go through eye of a needle. Um, there was also uh, a statement about um, no one has seen a palm tree made of gold and an elephant can't go through the eye of a needle. So there was different iterations of this and it was explaining um, that it was impossible. That was what it was, just a saying to... to orchestrate and illustrate that something was impossible. We have these in our culture too. Like if you're a sports fan like I am, you know, um, at the time we're recording this, our football team here in Arizona is not awesome. They got some grit, but they're just, they're not very good. And, you know, if they get blown out here, you know, this coming game that's on the next couple of days for them, if they get blown out, we could say something like they're getting blown out or they got destroyed or man, they got annihilated because they lost by so many points. When we say that, do we mean they really got blown out of the stadium like a bomb went off and it blew them physically out of the stadium? No. Do we mean that they were literally annihilated? There's no pieces of them anywhere because they were trampled so bad in defeat? No. What we're saying, the sayings point to is that they got beat really bad. There's a huge discrepancy in the score of the game, right? Same way that they're using this particular passage. He's saying that it's impossible for the rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might start thinking about this and go, Matt, well, I know people who are believers who give a lot to the kingdom. And they're wealthy and they're Christians. And so they're what I would consider rich. And I would tell you that in the, uh, what I would say to you about that is in the context of this story, He's not talking about believers who are wealthy. He's talking about the same kind of people that this man was, that their, that their riches were, they were attached to them. See, this comes right on the heels of him talking about this man who was sad when God told him or Jesus told him to give away all his riches. What he's alluding to here is that your heart can't be for money, for things of this world. Your heart has to be for God. 
And no matter how much you earn, no matter how much you double, triple, quadruple the money that you have or however rich you become on investments or if you're a millionaire or billionaire or, or whatever it is that, you know, some exorbitant amount of money in the future, whatever that is, none of that makes you right with God. What he's saying here is that not that if you're a Christian person who is wealthy, you can never enter into heaven. No, he's saying not a man. He's saying a man who is defined by something else besides God, a rich man. One that puts all his hope, all his trust into money, gold, and silver. <clears throat> you might think, well, if you have a bunch of money and you're a believer and you give a lot of it away, it's kind of evidence that your heart's good, right? And I would be someone who kind of leans towards that direction until I had lunch with a friend of a friend of mine and Nina's who was very successful in business and by my standards is incredibly wealthy. He sat at the at this table, this little spot we were eating, you know, breakfast or around lunchtime, I think, together. And we sat there for several hours and talked about God and things we had learned and you know, things that we did wrong in the past and things that God had showed us and the refinement processes we went through. It was such a great conversation. But he began to tell me how even though he was giving exorbitant amounts of, amounts of money to the church and to ministries and outreach programs, that um, he was disappointed in himself because of his own heart behind the giving. See, he wanted to be known as the big giver. He wanted to be known as the one who was wealthy enough to part with all this money and in his lifestyle didn't take a hit. He wore, um, he had, had a number of wildly expensive cars and he talked about how irresponsible he was with some of those and how badly he stewarded some of the things that he was entrusted with and knew that he was going to have to give an answer for it one day. He gave this one particular um, example that stuck out to me because I spent a lot of time in the, the music portion of the church world as a worship leader. And he said that he um, that when he'd get ready to go to church in the mornings, he would open up his closet and he would get he'd be getting dressed and he'd look down at his box of watches and he would be sure to go in and grab the one of the most expensive name brands that he could before he went to church. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because when I when the worship started, I wanted to raise my hands. And when I raised my hands, I wanted people to see the watch that I was wearing was this name brand expensive thing and that people would look at him and be like, man, that dude is blessed. That guy is blessed. I kind of winced for a second because, yes, I thought, oh my gosh, they're in worship. Lifting our hands to God is a moment of surrender and and a moment of to kind of example that we're we're letting it go. All of the praise goes to God, and yet even in that moment, our flesh can find a way to try to allow allow us to take a little piece of that glory. I winced because I recognized the heart. Not in him. I didn't know that about him. I recognized it in me. That my culture around me had so ingrained me to think that blessings are all about money. That if I want to be blessed, it was like a Christian code word for, you know, things going right financially in my life. Um, 
but wanting to be seen or known because of money is a form of pride. And God hates when we are proud. Proverbs specifically calls out the how God detests, he rejects the heart of the proud. This is another warning for us to not let the materialistic things that people look at as a measure of earthly success, don't let those things capture our heart. Because if we're doing that, and we're, everything that we're doing is trying to get, the, get more money and more stuff, we are not stewarding our time, talent, and treasure correctly. This third passage I want to go through today is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's the whole chapter. It's only 19 verses long, but I want to stop every few verses and kind of just point our attention to a few things in the remaining few minutes that we have here this week. 2 Corinthians 9 uh, verse 1. This is Paul talking to Christian people in the city of Corinth. Now the city had been very excited to hear about a new church that was going on in Jerusalem, a Christian church, and they wanted to take up money and send it to this church to support them because some of them were being persecuted, and they wanted to participate in the development of this church. And they had talked about it for a long time, and uh, Paul was about to come through their area and pick up that offering and take it to Jerusalem on their behalf. This is what he says in verse 1. I really don't need to write you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. These first two verses draw out a couple things that I want to draw our attention to. First of all, Generosity is contagious. It's contagious. If you want to be a generous person, which you should, then you need to get around generous people. The people here that were in Macedonia just heard what the church in Corinth and some of these other places wanted to do for financially for the for the uh, the church in Jerusalem, and that alone provoked them into doing good works. I don't know whether Macedonia had more money or less than the church in in uh, Corinth. I don't know if they said, man, those guys are giving a whole bunch and we can give a little bit to help, or those guys are giving that. We have more than them. We should give more than them. I don't know which way it went, but there was an encouragement regardless because they watched someone be generous and obedient to help other brothers and sisters in Christ. They were compelled to do the exact same thing. Generosity is contagious. We should be generous, and that means we need to get around generous people. Verse 3, but I, Paul, am sending these brothers to be sure you are really ready as I have been telling them and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So, I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. 
couple of things I want to point out in this particular group of scriptures here from this same chapter is we need to survey and evaluate the needs of the people around us. We get this wrong a lot in the church because we're very outreach-oriented, and we should be. That has, to, that has to be a part of what we do as a church, is evangelism. But many times you will find churches who refuse to help the people that are in its own congregation because they have money allocated to go out um, for, other, for other places. Having that money allocated is not wrong. However, we consistently see over and over and over again that we're supposed to be taking care of the believers inside our fellowship first, our family, our church, and then the rest of the people who, who need the gospel. <clears throat> we're supposed to be looking out for each other in that context. So we need to evaluate, pay attention to, and survey the needs of those that are around us. The next thing we need to do is take time to prepare your giving. If you know that there is a, an outreach effort or something that you want to give to and you know it's coming up, don't wait until the moment of the, to collect the offering or to give towards the event comes. Prepare now. Paul is sending men ahead of time to say, hey, you wanted to do this. Let's go ahead and get it prepared now. So when the need arises and I get there, we can just take it and go and, and give it to the people who need it. Prepare your giving. Next thing he very clearly says, give willingly, not out of a, a fear that, um, not out of a fear that you're going to, um, uh, you know, you're going to miss something or you're under a curse if you don't do it. If you don't part with a certain percentage of your money, you're under a curse um, and, and all of that fear mongering tactics that happen. We're not supposed to embrace that. We're supposed to be giving willingly. And the last thing he mentions is give like a person who's sowing seeds for a future harvest. You know, I mentioned earlier that I was duped by a lot of people who told me, um, you're going to get this reward. And what it did is it bred me to think about giving and not for the purpose of giving or glorifying God, but for the purpose of getting more. Wait a minute. If I give a hundred bucks in the offering and God's gonna give me a hundred fold, I'm gonna get ten grand out of this deal here in this season of my life. And we talked about how how you know kind of grimy that is and unbiblical. And you might be thinking about that and he goes, Well, Matt, here it says that, you know, a person who who sows, you know, sparingly, reaps sparingly, um, a person who only plants a few seeds, only gets a small crop. People who plant generously will get a generous crop. There's not a number tied to this. No one can ever tell you that giving is like, um, or, or kind of pretend that giving is like, you know, church bonds, right? Like you're going to get an estimated 5 to 8% return on your money year over year, every year that you hold it, and as if that's how this works. No, there's a, there's a, um, there is a, a scenario that can happen where you give money in a time of need. And four or five years from now, when you have a, a time for need, that people come through and help you. You may not immediately reap what you're harvesting. You may not throw down, you know, five seeds and get back 50. It might be that you receive it in a different way that God knows you need it in a moment that is of a dire need. There is a 
a sowing and reaping principle here. There's no getting away from it, and I don't even want to, I'm not even trying to challenge it. Yes, if you are more generous, people will return that generosity to you. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who who um, has a relative who is very generous when it comes to their money, and it's not public. They go and help people in school. They help people fix cars. They help people do all of these things to get them through in life because they have they have um, an abundance of money. Um, for over when I say abundance, I mean more than what they need to survive. And so they use this as ways to go help people. And uh, he talked about that when they were growing up at Christmas time, they would walk in the house and there would be thank you notes and flowers and bouquets and all of these gifts that just piled up in their house. And they never really realized where they came from. But that family member who was going out there all year, um, giving those things away and helping people financially, there was all of a sudden this this outpouring of love at Christmas time. People, thank you so much for what you did. Thank you so much for what you did. The more people you help, the more gratitude you're going to experience and the more people you're going to want to help. I don't want you to get into the mindset of the reason I'm stewarding my money and doing this right is so I can get more of it back. Your heart's wrong. That's the heart of building bigger barns so that I can keep this stuff for myself. And the only way I can get it to be bigger than what I have got under my control right now is give it to God and he's going to, you know, sprinkle some magic dust on it and boom, it's going to go, you know, a hundredfold. That's not what's being promised here. You will have a harvest. You will reap what you're sowing when it comes to money. But it, it's gener- it, it's the heart of the generous giver who is willingly doing it and not begrudgingly. If you have an opportunity to give more, then you will reap more, but there is no defined amount of money of what that is. And if we're only focused on what we're going to reap, then we've missed the whole point of giving and stewarding well. Let's keep going. Verse 7. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. When I was little, I don't know if you grew up in a Pentecostal church like I did, um, denominational Pentecostal church, but um, whenever the pastor would stand up and say, it's time for the offering, people in the church would applaud. They would just start clapping. And it was kind of weird the first time I saw it. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, God loves a cheerful giver, so let's cheer when the offering plates come down with the ushers. And, you know, I kind of chuckled at that and was like, this is kind of strange. Even as a child, I kind of... What was uh, I was a little suspect of that one, but the the goal here is not to keep the rule of cheering when the when the um, offering plates come down because or the offering bags or whatever is passed because you don't want to you want to follow the rules. I don't want to upset God. I'm supposed to be a cheerful giver, so I'm cheering that I get to put money in the bag. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is every single person. And I would say if you're married, every single family must decide what to give. Decide, I'm going to give this um, because I because I want to, because there is a desire. I'm not being, I, no one is like, you know, doing all the things to kind of, you know, compel me into giving, to put me, like, twist my arm. I really need, you know, I heard stories of people who would, you know, that, that, they would take up an offering and they would go and count the offering 
and they would come tell the pastor during the service how much offering was, and if it wasn't as much as he thought it should be, he'd get up there and berate the people and talk to them and throw scripture at them and, you know, kind of roundhouse them with Bible verses until they gave some more and he met whatever the goal he knew that he wanted or whatever. That is the exact opposite of what's being said here. Every person must decide what they want to give, and we're not supposed to give out of guilt. We're supposed to be people who are reluctant. We're supposed to be people who look at the opportunity and go, man, I am blessed to be in a position to help this person. Let me go help them, not to be seen, but so that I can honor God and what he's asking me to do as a steward. In verse 8, God will generously provide all you need, then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their, um, their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide an increase. Uh, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those in, who need them, they will thank God. Here again, Paul is alluding to the fact that God is our provider. He's the one who gives the seed and the ability, the, the skill, the understanding of how to make the bread. God is our provider. God gives us more than what we need as an opportunity to what? Share with others. And this thing that, there's a lot that jumps out of me in this passage, but the thing that, um, that I thought was a bold statement is that the people who share freely and give generously to the poor, their good deeds will be remembered forever. You've got a God who never forgets anything except for your sins, and he does that on, on purpose, intentionally wipes them out when you um, become a believer in Christ and you ask for forgiveness. He forever removes those things from his, chooses not to remember them again. But the God who has the ability to remember forever remembers what you've done. You will be enriched in a way, not so you can walk around and be like, look how blessed I am. You're going to be enriched in a way so that you can continue to be generous and that generosity to grow in you. And verse 12. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will glorify or they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will, pay, they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given you. Thank God uh, for this gift too wonderful for words. What he's plainly saying here is that giving to others is a way of God answering the prayers of his people. Some people need help. They need food. They need a ride to work. They need a vehicle. And if there is something in you that's prompting you to give in a way, if the Spirit of God's dealing with you or kind of communicating to you that you need to give in this way, if He is, um, or if there's just a generosity bubbling up in you to look out for a fellow believer who you know has a need, then do it. Because in fulfilling that, um, that unction from the Spirit of God and fulfilling um, uh, and, and following the generosity that God has given you. What you're doing is you are 
you are being one of the ways that God would choose to answer a prayer for someone. Giving to those in need is a form of ministry, and giving to others is proof of our obedience to Christ. The ultimate goal of us giving to others is not to increase our own riches like gift to get, but it is to glorify God. The win-win that's presented to us a lot, you know, in, in popular church is that we give a little, God gives us back a whole bunch. Um, because we took the risk on giving him some, so he's going to, you know, bless us with more to show us that's what we should have been doing, and you get more. And it's about giving to get. But this is really clear, that as a result of your obedient giving or your generosity to other believers, they're going to have moments where they glorify God. They pray for you. They thank God for you. But what they're going to do is give God glory for providing for them. <clears throat> so those two warnings that we read and that last passage about how we should be looking at giving changes the perspective of I got money and I can do whatever I want. It's Friday payday, you know, it's the first or fifteenth or the you know, whatever the days you get paid. Um and man, we going out tonight because I got money right now. No. I'm stewarding this. I have a plan for it. I understand where it's going. I'm telling the Dave Ramsey world, I'm going to tell my money where to go so I don't have to wonder where it went. I'm going to live in a way that I'm going to create some margin because I want to help those people in need. If you are someone who is going through a hard time and doesn't have the money to give right now, I completely get it. I went through a, a hard time financially several months ago as I was displaced from my job and couldn't find another job for four months. We we were in we, we we were we were running really really thin, and so people stepped up and helped us in our time of need. But if you're someone who constantly has not enough, if you're constantly in that that range of struggling to get by paycheck to paycheck. Um, it could be because you need to find another job or or something of that nature. You're not getting paid enough of where you're at. That, that could be a reality. But just consider also, maybe it's a stewardship issue. Maybe the fact that you have been entrusted with more. Maybe just consider, I'm laying this as at your feet as to submit it to you to consider. Maybe it's a stewardship issue. So when we talk about stewardship, there's some practical things you can do. Budget. Budget. See what you have coming in from your income, from your job, from whatever you do for business. See what your expenses are and tell you, I'm only going to spend X amount of dollars on food. I'm only going to spend X amount of dollars on gas. I'm only going to spend X amount of dollars on rent and lay out a budget for yourself. Save. Save some money. You're going to need to save some uh, something at some point, um, at least for an emergency fund, so that when you do hit a moment where um, – or where if the job goes away, like I mentioned earlier, we had a small emergency fund that carried us for a little while before it was gone. It wasn't an immediate issue that I had to fix in a few days. I had, I had you know six or seven weeks of of money saved up to where we could get through um, the immediate crunch and begin to look for something else. Invest, invest wisely, not in risky investments or you know all the things that promise. You know, we're gonna turn your you know, I'm going to turn your 500 bucks into a million. 
by the end of the month or something like that. Yeah, and avoid those you know um, scams and schemes. Just look at um, proper, healthy investing, and then give four really basic things that we can do to steward um, to steward what we've been giving very well. Because the promise is this: if our heart is right, if we avoid these pitfalls of pride and and wanting to be seen because of money and we're, our emotions and our everything we have is not wrapped up in money and materialism, but it's wrapped up in a heart that would obediently follow God into whatever direction He would have us go. If you um, uh, if you look at these practical steps and talk about, man, I'm going to make some plans here to give a certain amount at these times and. You know, I know I have this coming in here and, and looking at who I can help and being in tune with the things around me and the people who might have a need around me if I'm someone who has an abundance. Those are all the practical things. And if we do the job of supervising, managing, and caring for, stewarding what we've been given, we, be, we will be entrusted with more. I don't want you to look at this message as a, you know, as a ploy to get you to give in the offering. Yes, you're supposed to give to the church. Yes, you're supposed to take care of your pastors. Yes, you're supposed to do all of that. Every bit of it's biblical. But that's not supposed to be the limit of your giving. You're supposed to be looking for people that you can help. A generous heart is finding people it can help. And then when that praise comes, you give honor to the God who has given you the ability to have that abundance, that extra, so that people know, I'm not all about the money. My heart is in somewhere great, and that greater place is in eternity with my Creator. I'm hoping these messages are helping you when you come when it comes to the area of stewardship. If you need some help with your finances, if you're local here in Phoenix, we'd be happy to meet with you and kind of give you an outline for a plan for a budget and some people to talk to. It doesn't help us at all. It'll just be a way to try to help you become in line with what Scripture says to do. Um, or you can find you know, a lot of resources online to kind of help you on a practical level, but I want to encourage you, steward what you have been given well, and that includes your finances.